0: So let me open us up with a word of prayer and we will jump right in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance to be able to gather in your name and to gather around this book. We thank you for the truth of your word and for the way that Lewis expresses so much of that in this book. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we unpack the meaning of this book not only to be drawn more deeply into your kingdom, but to have more and more of a passion to share the truth of who you are with a world that is hurting. Lord, we pray for your grace and your presence with us this night, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am very excited to uh, be with you tonight and to be uh, moving on into the next part of uh, this book, uh, which is so full of so many good things. And as we do that, I would like for us to begin with our scripture verse from 2 Peter, uh, as we always do. And I would encourage you to say this aloud with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us And as I say every week, I'm always tempted to preach a sermon right now. Um, I'm not going to do it. One of these days, I might surprise you and just not be able to restrain myself. But I just want to point out that phrase toward the end where he says that you may become partakers of the divine nature. And that is a concept that is so important for us to understand because Part of what we're gonna see later on in this book is Lewis's explanation about that, that one of the amazing things about the miracle of the incarnation is not only did Christ take on human form and come down to the earth that he had made, but that in a miraculous way, when we are in relationship with him, we are drawn up into the very nature of the Trinity and the presence of the Trinity, which is an amazing thing to think about. So moving on, I want to uh, say a word of welcome to anyone who is new. Uh, We have new folks joining us every week, whether it is on the Zoom call or on the YouTube channel. And so for those who are new, I just wanna go over this quickly. There are three ways to approach this class. The people that are going deep are the scuba divers. The people that are gonna read everything, they're gonna do the homework, they're gonna listen to the music, they're gonna look at the words to the music, they're going to read those 70-page scholarly articles that I attach from time to time, and they are gonna go right down the rabbit hole with me on some of these things. And I love having the scuba divers, but I'm also happy to have the snorkelers. If you're a snorkeler, that means you're here, you come every week, and you dive deep but only on the things that interest you. So there might be a lot of things that you just stay on the surface and that is just perfectly fine. Or you may be that great group of folks who are on the beach And the people who are on the beach, you're just here. You're lucky that you managed to get dialed in on the Zoom. You may be eating dinner. You might be listening to another podcast on your earphone, but you are here in one way or another. And I'm delighted to have you on whatever terms work for you. Uh, I do want to remind people who are new to please send me an email at Saint Phillips. In Charleston, if you Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, it'll come up. And I can get you added to our email list, which is an important part of this class uh, because there are a lot of materials that come out with that each week. Uh, Again, just recommendations on reading this book. Read it out loud. It's too much uh, to try to read a lot of it at one time because it's so deep. And because of the fact that it was written originally to be a broadcast talk, Uh, There's a lot to chew on on each chapter. So one chapter at a time, reading out loud is a big help in how to read. And then the C.S. Lewis Doodle on YouTube, uh, if you get even more confused after listening to me, uh, the C.S. Lewis Doodle may be able to help you straighten things out a little bit. So I commend all of those things to you. And let me see if I can get us back on track here. Um, Tonight's music is something that's a little bit different. So uh, we'll see whether anyone recognizes this. If you do recognize it, um, you can send a little chat, and uh, we'll see if you're right. So let me try to get this going here. Saruman's theme from The Lord of the Rings. And you may think, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, if you manage to stay awake till the end of class, uh, you will find out what it has to do with something, because it actually has a lot to do with what we're talking about tonight. So just a quick review of our context. We're in England in World War II. The BBC is broadcasting these talks. Uh, Their headquarters is being targeted by the Luftwaffe with bombs. Lewis is going in under those circumstances to broadcast live, um, risking his life to do it. Uh, We talked about Jimmy Welch, the director of religious broadcasting, that made sure Lewis would do these talks. We talked about Lewis's ministry to the pilots and the RAF and how they helped him learn to talk with common uh, everyday folks, not just Oxford professors. And then we talked about the two great prefaces to this book. The first book, uh, just as a quick review, Lewis does not start this book talking about Christianity, even though the title is Mere Christianity. He said that it was important to start before that, Uh, To try to help people think about those big questions. Where did the cosmos come from? Who are we? How did all of this come to be? And so, in that first book, he talks about right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe, and he talks about the law of human nature that sense that there's something we ought to do and we don't always do it. And he talks about the fact this is not just a convention, that it's a truth that runs through the human race across time and across culture. And we agree um, with Lewis's view that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, that the morality of the allies in World War II was better than that of the Nazis, especially important for us to remember today on Holocaust Remembrance Day. But what Lewis said is that you can't just say one morality is superior to another without having a reference point. And he says that reference point, the standard that measures, is something different from either one of them. And that's a hard thing to explain where that came from. And he said in chapter 3 that one of the odd things is that when you talk about the law of gravity, it describes what stones always do if you drop them or for that matter, what happens to you if you jump off a diving board, you don't fly up to a cloud, you drop, hopefully, down into the water. And the reason for that is gravity is a law that is inexorable. It always happens the same way. But the law of human nature is not like that. We know what we ought to do and we don't do it. And as Lewis says, if we get caught not doing it, we come up with a list of excuses as long as your arm about why we were justified in not doing it. So Lewis says in chapter four, there must be something behind the law that is telling us what this law of human nature is, and that we see that inside ourselves. And then in the last chapter of that first book, he says, it is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law and that you've broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap, And wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. And if there were ever a quotation that was apt for our era right now, that is it. So many people are looking for comfort. And as the old song says, they're looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong faces. And as they look and look and they don't find, they become beset with despair which is why this gospel message that we have is such a treasure. So we talked a little bit about implications of book one, and I just want to read this uh, quotation because it could very easily be said to us today. And this was from Jimmy Welch at the BBC to Lewis about why this work was important. In a time of uncertainty and questioning, it's the responsibility of the church to declare the truth about God and his relation to men. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women, and to examine the ways in which that faith can be applied to present-day society during these difficult times. And I say, amen or amen or however you like to that. That is what we need to be about as the church today. And we talked a little bit about Tim Keller's great little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which I'd encourage you to buy if you don't have it. Uh, It's very inexpensive. It's short. Um, That is something you can read in one sitting. But it's basically about how we have got this wrong idea about self-esteem and we are all worried about people with low self-esteem, and we find that we have a lot of people who are also narcissists as a result of that. And Keller breaks down the scriptures to make a very compelling case that what we need is gospel humility, that we who are Christians need to have gospel humility. We don't need to be prideful, looking down at people that disagree with us or saying they're evil or the antichrist, but that we need to be embracing gospel humility, praying for those who differ from us, and seeking every opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with them. And we've talked about how uh, we are often inoculated against the claims of the gospel. And if you were at St. Philip's this week, this was a wonderful God incident. The sermon this past week was on this exact theme and I would love to say Jeff and I planned that, but we didn't. God just did that. Uh, but I would commend to you to listen to that sermon. I'll send the link in the email. Uh, but the idea is that a vaccine works by giving you just a little bit of a disease so that you're inoculated against it. And the idea is that we and our culture have been inoculated against Christianity because people have a little bit of it or know a little bit about it and they think they know everything about it and they've rejected it. And we who are Christians often have a little bit of it and we're not really living it out to the fullest. We also talked about that uh, in a world like the one we live in and the one where Lewis lived, the power of story, the power of beauty, the power of transcendence These are ways to get around the uh, closed-mindedness that you often find against Christianity. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later tonight. Um, And the background for book two, which we've just started last week, uh, remember the first series, Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, concluded in November 1941. And that was part of the darkest part of World War II. The Blitz had been happening, Europe had fallen like dominoes, the United States had refused to enter the war, Britain felt like it was all alone, German troops were massing on the other side of the English Channel, and then Pearl Harbor happened. Uh, And the one good thing about Pearl Harbor from the British perspective is that made the Americans join the war. But that was the uh, time period when they were asking Lewis to do more talks, And uh, Eric Fenn, who was on the BBC staff, looked over Lewis's drafts and said, I've had time at last to read your scripts. I think they are quite first class. Indeed, I don't know when I have read anything in the same class at all. There is a clarity and inexorableness about them, which made me positively gasp. Well, for an English man to say something that loaded with enthusiasm is very unusual. So we talked about book two, uh, the outline last week, um, and we started with the rival conceptions of God, Uh, Lewis saying one thing about Christianity is that you don't have to believe that every single thing and every other religion is wrong. You can believe that there are echoes and shadows of the truth, but only in Christianity does it reach its fullness. And of course, where religions disagree, Christianity is the one that is correct and should be followed. Uh, he also talked about the difference between religious and atheistic views, pantheism versus the Christian view of God, And this is something that we're seeing so much right now. You might remember part of pantheism is this idea is that there's no such thing as good and evil. Remember all those times that we've talked about uh, the idea of sin being outmoded and that a lot of people, even in the church, say sin is an outmoded construct because there's no such thing as evil and good. It's just a matter of your perspective and what you want to do sincerely. Well, that's pantheism, folks. That's the idea that it doesn't matter um, what it is. It could be good or bad, depending on how you look at it. And the example Lewis used is the example of cancer, that we think cancer is bad. And anybody that's ever had cancer would certainly agree with that. But... The flip side of that is you look at cancer and we think that the surgeon is good because the surgeon is the one that comes in and removes the cancer. But the unfortunate thing with pantheism is that they would say, well, you could say the surgeon's bad because he's going in and killing off the cancer. So he's killing something, killing's bad. So you can't really say one is good and the other is evil. So... That sort of begs the question, um, after you dispose with the pantheistic view of, in the Christian view of God, if God is good and he made the world, why has it gone wrong? And that is a question that Lewis is going to continue to explore And he said this, Christianity thinks God made the world, that space and time and heat and cold, all the colors and taste and animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. And so Lewis then very honestly said part of his problem as an atheist was he argued against God because he said the universe seemed cruel and unjust. But then he was challenged to think about, well, how do you know what's just and unjust? If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So we talked a little bit about myth and types and shadows, all of those things that point to Jesus. In the Old Testament, for example, when you look at uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek back there in Genesis, or you look at King David, all of these people are types and shadows of Jesus. They're pointing toward the fulfillment that's going to come in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. We also talked about absolute truth versus relativism, and we're going to come back to that later on in this book. So that brings me to tonight's chapter, chapter 2, uh, of book two, which is called The Invasion. And as you read this, you may think, why is he calling this The Invasion? But just hold on, it's coming. It doesn't come till the very end. So he's keeping you on the seat, on the edge of your seat, trying to figure that out. So he starts off talking about the fact that many views that people have about faith and religion are too simplistic, that people have not really thought about it very much, and if they have thought about it, they haven't thought very carefully. And Lewis says that he believes now from the perspective of having been an atheist um, about 10 years before he wrote this, that atheism is too simple because it discounts too much evidence. And he doesn't go into what that evidence is here, but some of the things he talks about in some of his other works are things like this law of human nature. Um, He also talks about the idea of profligate beauty. And one of the examples he uses of that is sunset. And if you've been watching sunsets, if you live anywhere around the water in Charleston, the sunsets this winter have been absolutely spectacularly beautiful. But Lewis says there is absolutely no evolutionary reason, no reason proceeding from a materialist, atheistic point of view that can account for profligate beauty. There's no reason for it. There's no reason that it should be ordered and beautiful. There's none of that. And so it it begs the question, Why is it like that? Why doesn't it just become dark, or why is sunset not ugly instead of beautiful? Um, That's a whole nother course on the evidence against atheism. So, moving right along, uh, he says the other view that is too simplistic is what he calls Christianity and water, like scotch and water, Um, that the idea is that this is a simple kind of feel-good religion This is sort of what was talked about in the sermon again this past Sunday, of people that have a little bit of Christianity. They like to believe that God loves them, that he has saved them, but they don't want to obey him, they don't want to repent, and they don't want to persevere when things get tough. So this Christianity and water version says that there's a good God in heaven, and everything is all right, but it leaves out the difficult and terrible doctrines about sin and hell and the devil and redemption. And Lewis says that is too simple. He says real things are not simple. They may look simple, but they are not. And he has this great analogy. He says the table that I'm sitting at looks simple, but ask a scientist to tell you what it is really made of all about the atoms and how the light waves rebound from them and hit my eye, and what they do to the optic nerve, and what that does to my brain. And of course, you find that what we call seeing a table lands you in mysteries and complications that you can hardly get to the end of. And so part of what Lewis is saying here is that there is a beautiful simplicity in creation, but the reason for that is because there is a brilliant designer behind it. Then he talks about destructive simplicity. And here he says, people who consciously or unconsciously want to destroy Christianity put up a version of Christianity suitable for a child of six and make that the object of their attack. In logic, this is what's called the straw man. When, they try, when you try to explain Christian doctrine as it is really held by an instructed adult, they then complain that you are making their heads turn around and that it's all too complicated and that if there really were a God, they are sure he would have made religion simple because simplicity is so beautiful. Notice, too, their idea of God making religion simple, as if religion were something God invented and not his statement to us of certain quite unalterable facts about his own nature. And I want to take a quick little detour here for a minute. This is something that is rife in our world right now. So many people who go on the attack and want to destroy the Christian faith have no understanding of what Christians actually believe. And I would love to be able to put myself up on a little pedestal and look down my nose and say, oh, those bad people, because they're doing that. But unfortunately, I have to look at myself in the mirror, as all of us who are Christians do. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say that a lot of times the reason people have a wrong idea is because of the way they've watched us live, the way that they have not heard us articulate the truth about Christianity. So, one of the things that's important if you are in a relationship with someone where you're trying to share the truth of the gospel is to admit that Christians do this themselves and to try to explain humbly and gently what Christians actually believe. Now, if you want to uh, get into a more intellectual conversation of this ilk, uh, any of you who studied philosophy in college, you'll probably remember running into Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell's one of the great philosophers of the 20th century. And one of my favorite things to do, if someone comes to me who's got sort of an intellectual bent and says, I'm an atheist, but I'm a little bit unsure about it, would you be willing to have some dialogue with me? And of course that is, just such a beautiful thing when somebody says that, and I always completely rock their world because I say, oh, I would love to do that. How about we study Bertrand Russell's book, Why I Am Not a Christian? And uh, that is not what they're expecting me to say. But the reason for that is Bertrand Russell's book, Why I Am Not a Christian, really is just terrible. His idea of what Christians believe, I think a sixth grader who had been through um, some good Sunday school could disabuse him of a lot of it. Um, His understanding of what Christians believe is really off. So uh, that is something that is part of our culture that was part of Lewis's culture then and is part of our culture today that we need to be aware of and take some responsibility for. The next point that Lewis makes is one that uh, is often quoted out of this book, and people never remember where in Lewis's writings he talks about this, so you're getting the inside scoop here, uh, the whole thing about reality being odd. Uh, This is where it comes from. So Lewis says when he's talking about reality, uh, reality with a capital R, what's true, he says, besides being complicated, reality, in my experience, is usually odd. It is not neat, not obvious, not what you expect. And he has a great analogy. He says when you've grasped that the Earth and the other planets all go round the Sun, you would naturally expect that all the planets were made to match, all at equal distances from each other, or distances that regularly increased, or all the same size or else getting bigger or smaller as you go farther from the sun. In fact, you find no rhyme or reason that we can see about either the sizes or the distances, and some of them have one moon, one has four, one has two, some have none, and one has a ring. Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. And I think this is an absolutely brilliant point, that there are um, quirks in the way that things work. There are things that you would not expect. And those things, there's a sort of glorious beauty in how odd they are. One of my favorite lines that some of you all will remember, um, maybe two years ago in one of the Lewis classes we were doing, we we're talking about that marvelous poem, Methopia, or mythopoeia that Tolkien wrote for Lewis uh, in 1931 uh, when Lewis became a Christian. And it's a contrast of two different worldviews. And one of them Um, As Tolkien writes in this poem, he's talking about things that are odd in nature, and how God made these things that are so odd. And one of the lines in the poem is the large, slow oddity of cows. That's a great line, but there's a lot of truth to it. Next time you're around a cow, just look at it and think, would I have made something that looked like that? It's not really very logical the way that it seems to be put together. But it's beautiful. And that is the way God's reality is. And Lewis says, this is a mark of the reality of Christianity. The idea that God would have sent his son into the world to be a vulnerable, helpless baby, lying in a manger, Um, as the poet says, uh, the eternal mystery lying on the bestial floor, uh, that is not something you would have expected. You would have expected God to send his son in a blaze of glory coming down and saying, okay, you people, it's time to shape up or ship out. That's what we might have expected, but not that's not what we got. We got a baby in a manger with animals around. So, I could go on and on about that, but we need to move on. So, uh, that is one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith, is the, the oddity about it that has the ring of truth. So, the next point he makes is that goodness and badness are widely misunderstood, and that people often think that they are two sides of the same coin, But the fact of the matter is that they are not. That goodness is very, very different from badness. And he says, you can be good for the mere sake of goodness, but you cannot be bad for the mere sake of badness. You can do a kind action when you are not feeling kind and when it gives you no pleasure simply because kindness is right but no one ever did a cruel action simply because cruelty is wrong, only because cruelty was pleasant or useful to him. In other words, badness cannot succeed even in being bad in the same way in which goodness is good. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness, and there must be something good before it can be spoiled. Now, I realize this is a little abstract, but this is a point that's important to get your head around. And um, it reminds me of that old little poem, um, you know, just before Christmas, I'm as good as I can be. Uh, This whole idea that we, we can make ourselves be good even when we're not feeling like it because we know that we ought to or that there's some reason that it would be good to do that. But we don't get pleasure out of trying to do those things that are good. Um, we, we just know that we ought to and we can make ourselves do it um, so as to not get in trouble, for example. And people do plenty of things that are cruel and bad, but they don't do it just because they think cruelty is wrong and it would be great to do something that's cruel because it's wrong. Instead, they do it because it's pleasant. They like to see other people suffer, or they might be able to get ahead of someone else by doing something cruel. So what Lewis is saying here is that if you don't know what goodness is, you have no standard to say what's bad, that badness can't be defined without knowing what goodness actually is. And he goes on from this um, when he's talking about dualism. And dualism is the idea that there are two powers, the power of good and the power of evil, that are constantly fighting back and forth with each other. And he says that Christianity actually has a fair amount in common with dualism. But that one of the things that Christians know and proclaim is that God is far stronger than evil. That Jesus and Satan are not like two people uh, in the corners of a prize fight um, where the odds are equal that they're going to win. Jesus is infinitely superior and more powerful than Satan. Uh, But this idea of the battle between good and evil is something that is part of understanding Christianity. But the problem with dualism is it never gets beyond good and evil to actually think about whether there's a God. So Lewis says part of the problem with dualism is the idea of intelligence and will that has to be part of someone choosing to be bad. So in order for something to be bad, it must exist. That seems fairly axiomatic. Uh, You can't be bad if you don't exist. So we've got something that exists that's bad, and it has to have intelligence and will in order to do anything. But existence, intelligence, and will are in themselves good. They are things that are good that can be corrupted. So they must be coming from the good power. Even to be bad, he has to borrow or steal from his opponent. And as Lewis says, and and do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? This is not a mere story for the children. It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers given it by goodness. All the things which enable a bad man to be effectively bad are in themselves good things resolution, cleverness, good looks, existence itself, skill in public speaking, all of that. That is why dualism in a strict sense will not work. Now, those of you that have read the screw tape letters or were part of that class will remember screw tape. Uh, talking about how frustrated Satan and the powers of darkness are about the fact that they have never been able to create a single pleasure. They've never been able to create one. And that God has littered the world with all of these pleasures that we can enjoy. But the underworld forces have never been able to create one. And Satan, through the voice of Wormwood, says all we can do is to take pleasures that are good in themselves and then try to twist them so that they are being taken in a way that is harmful to someone else or that denies the reason that they were made. And so the idea of that twisting of pleasure is the same idea that Lewis is getting in here, that people who are evil Um, Think of Hitler, for example. Uh, Hitler had many qualities that if they had been turned toward a good purpose, would have made uh, a good leader. He was a great public speaker. He was a great planner. Uh, He could inspire loyalty in people. But the problem, of course, was that he was evil and that he was turning all of those attributes that could be used for good, and to attributes that he used for evil. And some of you will remember Lewis talked about this fact. It was actually part of his inspiration for the screw tape letters, that he had listened to one of Hitler's speeches over the radio the night before he went to church, uh, when he had the idea to write the screw tape letters while he was doodling during a boring sermon. And uh, when he was listening to Hitler's speech, Lewis wrote afterwards, it's very troubling to me that even though I know very much what I believe and I know how very wrong Hitler is, that when under the spell of his voice, it is almost impossible not to waver just a little. And so what Lewis is talking about there is how badness, evil, is a taking of the good things that God has given and bending them to an evil purpose. And that brings us to the dark power. Lewis says this, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that the universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. And so, of course, this is the idea that Satan is a fallen angel. And the traditional Christian understanding is that through the sin of pride, of hubris, of wanting to be his own God, the very sin that we see Adam and Eve tempted to in the Garden of Eden, did God really say to not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, eat the. Boy, that was a tongue twister. Uh, not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, of course, he's trying to get them to doubt what God said. And then he gets the clincher. He says, God does not want you to eat that fruit because he knows that if you do, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And that doesn't mean be like God in the sense of the way Christians want to be like Jesus, of emulating him. It means being like God in terms of being your own God, being able to do your own thing and be in charge of your own universe. And that is where uh, Satan went wrong and where uh, his uh, whole... uh, way of thinking of trying to take down God and the people of God comes from. But this dark power is something that you see referenced all through the New Testament. And one of the beautiful things about Jesus is you see when Jesus comes, he casts out that darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And many of the images that he uses are about this battle between light and darkness. The Gospel of John is absolutely full of light and darkness imagery that is beautiful. And if you look at the uh, PowerPoint slide, you will see down in the bottom, there's a little illustration. And that little illustration, uh, you might know what that is uh, if you have watched the Lord of the Rings movies. And that is the, the Eye of Mordor, um, Sauron, the Dark Lord. And in The Lord of the Rings, there is a, an epic battle between good and evil, much in the way that Lewis has just talked about here. And there is a dark power, and Sauron is usually referred to as the Dark Lord, Does that sound like anyone we've been talking about tonight? Oh, as the church lady used to say, could it be Satan? Yes, it could be Satan. The Dark Lord is very much an image of Satan. So, Lewis is trying to tell us here that this dark power is something to take seriously, that it is behind death and disease and sin and despair, but that it is not the most powerful force in the universe. Indeed, that the person of Jesus Christ is the most powerful. So that brings us to the invasion. I told you we'd get there if you held on and stayed awake, so good job on that. So Lewis says this, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know. And I'm not particular about the hoofs and horns. But in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. So what Lewis is saying here is that we are in enemy-occupied territory, that the rightful king has landed in the enemy-occupied territory in disguise, as it were, and he is calling all of us who are Christians to take part in our campaign of sabotage by undoing the works of darkness. And he says, going to church is listening in on the wireless. Uh, It's getting the inside information about how to be effective in this resistance. And it reminds me a lot, I think some of the imagery he's thinking about is informed by uh, what we know about the French resistance during World War II and the amazing things that they did and the way they were so interconnected and um, always doing things to harass and annoy the enemy. So just like with Screwtape last time, annoying the devil. So they are part of this massive Campaign of sabotage. But Lewis says it is very important for us to understand we do have an enemy. We have an enemy that wants to take us out, and that the things that the enemy most wants us to not do are things that we are particularly prey to doing. So I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So there are a couple of implications out of this. The first is this cultural movement that is really getting to the ascendancy right now that there's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as right and wrong. This is pantheism in sheep's clothing. This has nothing to do with Christianity. Christianity has always condemned things that are evil, it has always said, love the sinner but hate the sin. Uh, It is never said that we should accept things that are evil and that are wrong. Um, That is just pantheism dressed up in 21st century garb. And then the second implication um, goes back to this idea of the story of the invasion. We have an enemy. The dark power is real. And I don't want to cause anyone to go into despair about this, uh, because as Lewis says at the beginning of Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors about the devil, both of which please him. One is to disbelieve in his existence entirely, the other is to see him behind every bush. And of course, uh, as Christians, We are to believe in the existence of the devil, to realize that we have an enemy, that there is a dark power, but not to be quailing in fear of him all the time. But the difference is, and I've used this analogy before, if you go out on a walk in the country and it's a beautiful place and sort of deserted and there's a path along the river and you're walking and it's beautiful and the birds are singing, you walk in one way. But if you were on that walk and you had gotten a cell phone call as you started your walk saying, there's a sniper in one of the trees, the way that you walk would be very different. And what Lewis has tried to tell us is that there is an enemy. It is not as if Christianity is just a walk in the park. And we need to be aware that the way the enemy works, and this is sort of the whole point of screw tape Letters, The way the enemy works is not what we think it is. We think the way that the enemy works is to tempt us into doing something that we think is spectacularly evil. Going to a strip club or a prostitute or taking all of our family money and gambling it away in Monte Carlo. That's the kind of thing we think Satan is interested in. But the actual fact of the matter is that what Satan wants to do is to separate us from God. What he wants to do is to stop us from doing those habits that annoy him. Habits of things like going to church or being in scripture or being in real fellowship or appreciating truth, beauty, and goodness. And listen what Lewis says right here. He says, one of his chief aims is to stop us from going to church. Well, how many people have been stopped from going to church during the past year. Lots of us have. And you might say that the cosmic powers may be at work in some of that with this pandemic. But the idea is, okay, he's tried to stop us from going to church. Are we gonna let him do that? No. So that's why so many churches are live streaming and doing things like having this class on Zoom. We are the sabotage going against this enemy invasion that has occupied uh, the Christian world. So part of what is important is to get the devil's goat by doing the things that annoy him. And chief, the first thing Lewis says that really annoys him, that's so important for us to do as Christians, is to go to church. Go to church. And we've talked about this before, but there's a phenomenon in modern American Christianity, particularly among younger people, where you meet people and they will say, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior and my Lord. I have a quiet time every morning. I listen to Christian praise music. And you say... Well, where do you go to church? Oh, well, I don't go to church. Um, it's just me and Jesus, and that's all I need. Well, I'm sorry to say, but that concept is unknown to the New Testament. Uh, it is unknown to the early church. And we need each other. We need to be in church where we are hearing uh, the Word of God expounded. So, And the second thing we need to do is be involved in the church Not just go to it like the way we go to the grocery store once a week. We need to be involved in playing our part there. And then Lewis really gets us. He says Satan does these things. He gets us to not go to church and to not be involved by playing on our conceit and on our laziness and on our intellectual snobbery. Ouch. How often... Have we complained about a church service or complained about, oh, they made that prayer service for the nation at eight o'clock in the morning. How could they ever expect anybody to get up and go to church at such an hour? Oh, my goodness. Um, Yeah. So we do a lot of those kinds of things, myself included. But this is just a great reminder from Lewis that stopping us from going to church and being involved in church is one of the chief strategies to defuse uh, the power of the Christian church. And this reminds me also of, in the story of the invasion uh, and the rightful king who's landed in disguise. If you've read The Lord of the Rings, that's what the whole book is about. Aragorn is the rightful king who is in disguise under an assumed name, and over the course of the three books, they defeat the Dark Lord, and the rightful king is installed on his throne, and peace and goodness and righteousness prevail in the kingdom. Does that sound familiar? It might sound sort of like the gospel, and the reason for that is that Tolkien was no fool. And he was a deeply committed Christian. And so he put this gospel truth and narrative into an incredibly wonderful story. And it is such a great gift to the church that we often fail to use. People that wouldn't get within 100 miles of the church or the Bible will dress up like characters out of the Lord of the Rings and walk around in public. So uh, it is, it is a work, even if you don't like it, Um, that's good to familiarize yourself with because it's a great tool as we try to share our faith with a world that is hurting. So, wrapping up this chapter, we have the great good news that even though we're in territory that's occupied by the enemy, the rightful king has landed. Jesus has landed. He is here. There are pockets of resistance, churches, all over the place, and we have the instruction manual, the Bible, the scriptures, to tell us how to resist, if we will but listen to them. So next week, uh, the chapter is the one that many people think is the best chapter in the whole book, so I would encourage you to give that a quick scan before class next week. Um, Let's close by saying together um, this passage from the end of the book and then we'll have a moment for questions. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end, and submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that although we live in enemy-occupied territory, and sometimes get very discouraged by that. We thank you that the rightful king has landed, that Jesus, the light of the world, is shining in the darkness. The darkness has not understood it, but the light shines and the darkness, and the darkness has not put it out. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be your church, to be the people who are holding out the word of life, who are not buying into the lies of the enemy, who are not being deceived, but who are standing for the truth, Lord, who are experiencing your love and grace and mercy in our lives. Lord, we are broken sinners. We are beggars at the foot of the cross, showing other beggars where to find bread. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart of compassion for those who do not yet know you. Lord, we thank you for this time and for this book. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.